Good evening and welcome to the Sunday, December 10th edition of Worldview. I'm Lee Rowe and I'm your host. We have a special program for you today. The Wisconsin All-Out for Palestine march and rally at the Capitol yesterday was sponsored by the Wisconsin Coalition for Justice in Palestine, representing more than 50 organizations across the state, including communities of color and labor groups. It brought together the largest demonstration for Palestine in our state's history. Today, we have two guests who were at the rally, members of the Jewish Voice for Peace organization here in Madison that has worked in our community for many years to promote peace in Israel and Palestine. And they are Esti Denur, a WORT host and on-air personality and active member of the Madison community, and Krista Brun, author, academic, activist, and mentor, as well as a mother of three Palestinian children. Their long-time personal connections and knowledge of the Israeli-Palestinian situation compels them to speak out, and we've brought them to Worldview today to talk about why there must be a ceasefire and a path to peace. Today, Worldview's Gil Halstead will facilitate our discussion, and we will invite you to phone in at about the half-hour point. So, Gil... Thanks much, Lee. And uh, we don't have Esty on the line yet. She's going to be joining us virtually, but we will reach her. Krista Bruin is in the studio with me, and I want to welcome her. You heard a little bit about her from Lee, about her connection to Palestine, but I want to turn to you now, Krista, and ask you to uh, tell us a little bit more. You've been involved as the mother of Palestinian children and also as an academic and a professional working in writing about the role of education in Palestine as a vehicle for personal change and as a mentor in an organization called We Are Not Numbers that provides a place for Palestinian youth in Gaza and Lebanon to share their stories about their life under occupation and as refugees. And most recently, you've actually been on WRT Air a few months ago in July talking about a book that you wrote this year, published this year, called Crossing Borders, The Search for Dignity in Palestine. And you've spent lots of time in Palestine over the last 30 years, right? That's right. <laughs> and in Israel, and have visited Gaza. So I want to just start by asking you to talk about how that life experience informs the way you see what is happening right now on the ground. Well, I think it's important. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. I think it's important to understand that I grew up in Detroit. And so I that was just after the rebellion of 67 during the civil rights era. And so I grew up in a city where I really witnessed the way uh, power plays out on the ground in people's lives and the ways in which uh, some people are privileged over others. And so I also am the daughter of a mother who dedicated her life to trying to revitalize the city of Detroit. And I'm the daughter of uh, my father actually grew up in Nazi Germany. He was a child soldier. I'm not Jewish. I'm from the other side. And so it's particularly important for me to honor that history and that legacy of never again from the Shoah, the, the culmination of persecution of Jews in, in Europe that culminated in the Shoah. And so it was actually when I was studying in Germany as uh, an undergrad that I had the opportunity to travel to Gaza and Jerusalem and visit a Palestinian family in Gaza who were refugees from Jaffa. So they were refugees in their own homeland and also a Jewish family who were new immigrants from the United States. And through the law of return, were able to settle in Israel and get uh, in, you know, citizenship and all the rights and privileges of that democracy. So, which of course is privileging Jews as, as a Jewish state. So for me, with my background in Detroit, I saw something very familiar in, in, in the sense of, you know, two peoples in the same land with completely different access and privileges 
to uh, self-determination, to freedom of movement and access to resources. And so that kind of planted the seed for me to want to make a difference in that part of the world. This was during the Cold War. So for me, it was just a point of contention between the Soviet Union and the United States as the superpowers. But once I got on the ground, it became very personal for me. And uh, I ultimately did meet my husband in the United States uh, at the fifth commemoration of the Sabra Shatila massacre of all, oh, of all places. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was very deeply invested in learning more about what was going on in Israel and Palestine. And and that just became the, you know, the trajectory of, of my life. So that kind of gives you the context. And you're, you've also been involved, your family's also been involved in in uh, doing business in Palestine as well. That's correct. So and actually so, continue to now. Right. So my entire, uh, you know, extended family through through my husband lives in a small village outside Janine. And about 19 years ago, Nasser started Canaan Fair Trade, which is now Canaan Palestine, to work with farmers on a fair trade organic uh, basis and now certified regenerative agriculture, kind of the future of what we're doing in agriculture globally, in an effort to keep Palestinians able to earn their living and pursue their traditional lifestyle on the land. And so, of course, Nasser's family was not, uh, they're not refugees. They got to stay in, in, in on their land. But they did lose land through the armistice agreement in 1949. And so, you know, without without this kind of project, many of these Palestinian farmers were working as day laborers in Israel. And before this project, also the price of olive oil had plummeted so severely that many farmers felt they couldn't even support their families through farming. So that has turned around. What hasn't turned around, of course, are the restrictions on life and livelihood through the Israeli occupation and the lack of will from the United States and other Western powers to to really answer what we call the question of Palestine, this 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 uh, story of the Nakba that happened in 1948 when Israel became a state, Palestine was basically wiped off the map, and so we have a, a Jewish state in Palestine, and Palestinians are marginalized in their own homeland. And how do you see that? That's the the sort of the the introduction or the a brief piece of what the narrative is that your family sees what the situation in Israel right now. How does that that narrative about the Nakba relate to what is happening right now on the ground in Gaza? Well, when I went to Gaza in 1986, that family, that family of refugees from Jaffa, are still refugees. Last I connected with them, which was a while ago, given the difficulty in connecting with people, they had already lost 42 members of their family, the extended family. And so the fact that through my whole lifetime, I have witnessed the Palestinian people remain barred from their homeland. So there's no right of return. We only have the law of return, which I already mentioned. And so... What happens when you have a people in their home, own homeland or those that have been in exile or, or are refugees in, in surrounding Arab countries? What happens when their right to self-determination is, is not honored? You have, you invite resistance. And so that's what we've been witnessing ever since, uh, honestly, ever since Zionism started promoting Jewish immigration to Palestine to re- reconfigure Palestine as a Jewish state. This didn't have to play out this way, but that is what happened, of course. And so in terms of, let's jump a little bit right now. We're obviously going to be going back and forth in, in the way this narrative has played out, but to uh, what happened on October 7th and the result of what is going on, the result which is what is going on in Gaza right now. Uh, have you been in touch with your family since what's going on? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What are well? What are you hearing from them about the way they are seeing what is happening on the ground there, and and also yourself from the way you're understanding it from the media that 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 we are seeing on a on daily basis now for the last two months. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the. Jewish narrative because it's important. You know, Israel was intended to be a safe haven for Jews after hundreds of years of persecution, culminating in the Shoah. 
uh, with Nazi Germany. So that was the intention, but it was designed, you know, it, it was marketed as uh, a land without a people for a people without a land. And of course, Palestine was never empty. It was always populated by Palestinians. And it's always been a very diverse and multicultural society, multi-religious, multilingual. And, and so to redefine that state as a Jewish state became a problem for the people who live there. Anyway, I, we, we want to talk about what's what's happening now. So Right. No, but you're right. It's important. And later in the show, we will hear, we'll, we'll get a perspective from Esti well, Denur. Sure. But thank you for doing that. For but, but, uh, but I think it is, it's important to realize that this has been Israeli policy all the way along. You know, we talk about the Netanyahu government being the most right wing, the most extreme in history. But the reality is that the narrative is consistent that Israel is defined as a Jewish state, which excludes non-Jews from full participation in society and full access to life and livelihood. And that's really what needs to be addressed. And until that is addressed through a, a genuine peace process, then we're going to we're going to circle back into cycles of violence. You asked me what my you know, my extended family overseas thinks. I mean, they're witnessing now an even greater restriction on life. The the major cities in the West Bank, Janine, Nablus, Ramallah, uh, Tulkaram, Kalkilia. I mean, they're they're experiencing daily raids, you know, where the army comes in and and just, you know, kind of hunts people down in the middle of the night and drags them out of bed. Uh, interrogations, uh, administrative detention where people are held without charges, without trial. And so so what they're seeing is just a continuation or an escalation of Israeli policy to assert control over the whole land between the river and the sea. I think we see that play out in Gaza. You know, the official narrative is 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 the destruction of Hamas after this horrific attack on October 7th that left 1,200 Israelis dead. And of course, the, the, the taking of, of hostages, uh, many of which still remain under Hamas control. But yeah, so I... <laughs> yeah, do you notice any difference? Because Biden specifically spoke about the West Bank and asked that the violence there and the arrests and the, the harassment of Palestinians by settlers be stopped if not put a break on at least. Have you noticed anything slowing down in that? Well, of, of course not. You know, what Biden is saying and what he's doing are two completely different things. He talks about encouraging or, you know, encouraging the Israeli army to take care not to target civilians in Gaza, which is which we know is impossible. The military assault following the humanitarian uh, truce can, you know, is probably leading to even more deaths than even before. So, so this whole this whole idea that you can somehow uh, that Israel is somehow going to play nice on this issue is is absurd. I think it's clear the agenda is to, as I said, assert control over the whole land. And I think Israel historically has used war and conflict as an opportunity, an opportunity to gain more control over the land in the name of self-defense. And yet we never, ever, ever, and I can say that five more times, mm -hmm. talk about the right to self-defense of Palestinians or how about the right to international protection? Uh, given the power differential, Israel is a, is a formidable you know, uh, the fourth, the strongest army it, in the it, world. Exactly. With, with a very, you know, very strong economy. It's the startup nation. I mean, there's all these things that Israel can brag about. And yet when it comes to the political situation, you know, we see we see what the agenda is. And it's really about asserting control. I think, you know, peacetime for Israel is a problem because it forces Israel to the negotiating table. It forces Israel to contend with this history of differentiating between Jews, between the river and the sea, and Palestinians who are living in their own homeland, either under occupation or as refugees. In addition to having the U.S. government and its uh, stockpile of weapons on their side, it occurs to me that one of the strongest weapons that Israel has and which it has used very well is propaganda. 
Well, Israel does have a very uh, well-connected narrative. You know, we saw that right after the Hamas attack. You know, we talked about this is a 9-11. And I'm not saying, you know, this was a, a huge, atrocious act that Hamas pulled off. And it was deeply triggering also for the Jewish community. I mean, what's really sad to me, honestly, is I've witnessed this whole year since Netanyahu is back at the helm of Israel with his, through his coalition. He has been challenging the integrity of democracy in its current form, which which mostly is is privileging the Jewish community there. But regardless, you know, the Israelis took to the streets every week since he came to power in January. And I was really hopeful that even though the focus of those demonstrations was on judicial reforms and the threat to, you know, democratic institutions like the the high court, the Supreme Court in Israel, you know, in spite of all that, I was hoping that that the, the discussion around democracy would open up that window to say, well, gee, how about democracy for all? between the the river and the sea. Even Palestinians who live in Israel and have Israeli citizenship feel discriminated against. You know, they they don't have the same rights and privileges as Jewish Israelis. But the reality is Israel controls the borders, the natural resources. And so Israel is not a Jewish state already. I mean, it's it's like letting the cat out of the bag. It's already a binational state. Why aren't we moving toward making it a true democracy? Israel always talked about wanting to be the light unto nations. That, to me, would be the light unto nations. And and that's why when Biden pulls out this old two-state solution card, which is now 30 years old and dead in the water for, for all kinds of reasons, the reality on the ground and the fact that both Palestinians and Jewish Israelis really in their hearts see the whole land as a continuous whole, contiguous whole. And so, and 20% of, of Israelis, Israeli citizens are already Palestinians. And now we have this huge settler population in the West Bank. What lines are you going to draw? How do you even navigate the landscape? It's impossible. I, I've never, you know, go, dating back to the first Antifada, I never saw that as a realistic solution, but now even less so. But of course, that's that's terrifying for the Israelis because, because they have defined Israel as a Jewish state. And as long as you do that, you can only have what other human rights organizations have named an apartheid state, whether it's B'Tselem or Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. There are all kinds or of... Or very strongly South Africa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I've talked a lot. What else would you? No, like we. To talk that's about? why we invited you to talk <laughs> a lot. So, I I want to um, ask specifically about something that that just happened on Friday and get sure. your take on that. I mean the the war on the ground is still going on. The bombs are still falling. We're hearing that every morning about where those where those missiles are falling. But on Friday, prompted by you and General Secretary Guterres. They got a resolu- He got a resolution before the United Nations Security Council to call for a ceasefire. And even before it happened, the United States vetoed it. And the, the language that we heard in that was in their veto language is something I wanted to ask you to respond to because sure. it, it's really struck me because essentially, I won't get the quote exactly right, but the statement from the United Nations uh, ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations office was, we will not support a ceasefire because that would plant the seeds for the next war, which to me sounds r- really almost Orwellian. But what's your reaction to that? And wh- where does that come from? Well, language is so language is part of this of this current crisis. Absolutely. You know, I talk about a war on words. You know, how many weeks did we argue over the difference between a ceasefire or a truce or a or, or humanitarian a, you know, like, pause. Yeah, I mean, they're all we're arguing over semantics while Palestinians are literally crumbling uh, beneath their homes, and and you know most of them not even being able to be rescued. So this war on words is 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 really absurd. And to to call supporting a ceasefire, Israel's official position is if you support a ceasefire, you are undermining or even denying 
Israel's right to self-defense. This is the official line. And so that was part of why we called the truce a truce and not a, a ceasefire. But the whole point of a ceasefire is to stop the fighting, to give space to an opening of how to move forward without more death and destruction. We got a taste of that with the humanitarian truce. We got to see the ways in which people can work together to get badly, desperately needed humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip, uh, to give people access to water and food and medical supplies and fuel so that they could run the hospitals, so that ambulances could get people where they needed to go, so they could you know, purify water. I mean, all these things have been almost virtually destroyed. So, so to say that a, a ceasefire will somehow plant the seeds of war What's planting the seeds of war is this is this absolute impotency on the part of American policy to deal with this issue once and for all. And I say the United States because we as a, as the United States of America have consistently backed Israel with three point eight billion dollars in aid, but also the cover through UN vetoes and all these you know all these things that American policy does. To, uh, to kind of insulate Israel from accountability. And this doesn't serve the Jewish people. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't serve the Palestinians. And I do hope the United States government begins to see this does not serve our interests, not at a political level and certainly not at an individual level, because the world is now... You know, the other day, you, you, you mentioned that I'm involved with Jewish Voice for Peace. So one of the things we've been doing is going to Tammy Bald, Senator Tammy Baldwin's office and asking her to take a leadership role uh, for a ceasefire. Of course, the Madison Common Council has already voted to support a ceasefire. So we have it at that level. And in doing that, Representative Mark Pocan has also stood up early on yes. to call for a ceasefire. And so I was out front of her office and this woman came up and she said, what are you doing? You know, we're, we're standing there holding signs. And, and she, uh, I found out she's from Lebanon. She, she lived through the war in Lebanon, Israel's destruction of her country. And she said she still is traumatized from that, if we want to get into a discussion about trauma. But uh, one thing she said is, is the United States was like this beacon of hope, beacon of democracy. You know, we have been so good at exporting our values of freedom and human rights. People believe us around the world. What she said now when she talks to people at home, you know, she said people are using the word devil to describe American policy. That's a huge shift. And, oh, that, and that, that will come back to haunt us. You know, and I think I think the the missteps that we've done in the Middle East throughout American policy with the uh, the two Iraq wars and now Afghanistan, you know, we've we've we're sowing the seeds. Yeah, but we weren't even even close to being on the right side in Yemen. We didn't call for anything except maybe once we we didn't sell the Saudis' arms at one point, but we let it go on. And it was at one point the biggest uh, humanitarian crisis in the world. Now we're we seem to be overwhelmed by crises. And yet we can see the incredible role American leadership can play. You know, just a year ago with the Ukraine war, virtually overnight, exactly. people came together and stood by Ukraine. You know, we, we even celebrated grandmas throwing Molotov cocktails, you know, when now a, a Palestinian child throwing a stone is detained by the Israeli army. And, and, you know, interrogated, you know, like a criminal when when what are they called off for? to jail? I'm coming back to yeah. this. This woman I met in front of Senator Tammy Baldwin's office. What are Palestinians asking for? They're not asking for the death of Jews or the destruction of Israel. They're asking for for their right to self-determination, for freedom, for democracy, for for international law to be respected, for human rights. And I mean. Palestinians know nobody's going anywhere, but this is not a sustainable equation that we are dealing with. And yet Israel is holding on tooth and nail, I think, to the current crisis, to conflict. That is why it's pushing the escalation in the West Bank to get so, so that it can say, oh, 
we have to do the same there. Look at these people. They're they're violent and they they want the destruction of the state of Israel when really they're calling out the very values that we as Americans espouse. We're speaking with Krista Bruin here on Worldview on this day, which is actually International Human Rights Day. Oh, my goodness. I think uh, <laughs> it might be worth mentioning at this point. 1948, the Declaration, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was voted on and endorsed by the then members of the United Nations. And we're talking about a human rights situation in Israel and Palestine right now. Krista was at the protest, this historic protest that took place in Madison on Saturday around the Capitol. And one of the things that, with the things that we saw on signs there, you've mentioned from the river to the sea already a, a couple of times in terms of the approach of Palestinians in the, the justice that they are seeking, but also had to do with Senator Tammy Baldwin and other politicians who are supporting continued military aid to Israel. And in fact, there was just news that President Biden has bypassed congressional approval to send even more aid to Israel now. I think th these are tanks, I think, in particular. So I guess you, you've already sort of described your perspective on why that aid is is continuing, but where where will this ever end in terms of actually getting to the point where there might be a one-state solution? It, it seems like there is the, the policy and trajectory of Israeli policy right now is to actually eliminate Palestinians. Do you have hope that coming out of this, there could actually be a truce that would move things as, as Lee in, introduced at the beginning of this, a Jewish Voice for Peace is hoping for a just and equitable resolution moving forward. It, it, right now, it seems that there's not that much hope for it. You know, even before October 7th, I felt the situation was urgent, and I'm not alone. I mean, this year we had already experienced um, increased tensions on the ground, and historically things have just gotten worse. So the sense of urgency to to what I call deal with this issue, to, to hold space for Israelis and Palestinians to come together and, and have the space to imagine a shared future, as many individuals and organizations on the ground already are. There are such organizations there, that, that there are. continue to operate, right? Yes. That, and even within Israel, they're yes. standing together. And, and, you know, they're there are honestly many. And I mean, this 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 idea is not even new. I mean, I was holding roundtables uh, 20 years ago on the idea of one democratic state. So this is this is not new. And I think even the PLO originally called for that. It was Oslo that forced everybody into this discourse of 67 borders and two state solution. So it's it's not a new idea. What is really important is to create the space for that. And you have to do, you can't do that in the midst of war. And I think that is why it's so important to have a ceasefire. And America, the United States, can take a leadership role in giving space for that scenario. Obviously, anyone who has power and privilege, as we know from our own history here in the United States, doesn't give it up easily or willingly. We have to, we have to put pressure as as we historically did in South Africa. Um, we've, we've witnessed uh, people coming together in Northern Ireland. You know, we've seen the Berlin Wall fall. I was in Germany that year. You know, things have happened. Miracles, seeming miracles have happened. And I would so, love to see President Biden say, Netanyahu, tear down that wall. That's what, what President Reagan did. And, and, you know, why aren't we consistent? Why aren't we consistent? Why isn't that what we're asking for? Why are we supporting the perpetuation of, of really right. and on I the think, ground? I think events like Saturday, people talking to other people, that's the only way that it spreads because we can't rely on our media, although they've been a little better lately, and we can't uh, rely on our media to get the word out. But you talked about the protests. It is so important for people to speak out and come together and of course, there's going to be a media campaign that tries to frame that as anti-Semitism right. and, and calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. But what we're really calling for is coming together for. Well, we have gotten word now that Esty is about to join us. And Wonderful. so, Esty, welcome to Worldview. Esty Denor, thank, thank you so much. 
So I don't know if you've had a chance to be tuning in and listening to the conversation so far, but we'd, we'd really love to get your perspective in joining in on it, in talking about your experience and sort of also why you played a role in yesterday's protest at the Capitol and your take on the Israeli narrative from your own experience that feeds into where we are right now. Yeah. So um, thank you for inviting me. And I apologize. I haven't heard until now. I was having car trouble. So <laughs> I just arrived home. But the thing that is perhaps the most uh, beguiling to me is the fact that practically everyone I know in Israel hates Netanyahu and hates Netanyahu's government. And yet, there's widespread support for this attack on uh, Gaza. It's not a war. It's not an army against an army. It's not soldiers against soldiers. The Palestinians don't have um, air force. They don't have navy. They hardly have. I mean, Hamas is a small military. They don't have much by way of armaments and weapons. So really, it is a very powerful and sophisticated military attacking civilians, and uh, not just civilians, but the entirety of Gaza. And that's just talking about Gaza because there's also West Bank, which we can talk about afterwards. But this attack is um, against civilians. It is killing civilians. They say now that they've killed 7,000 Hamas, but um, I highly doubt it because I haven't heard any such numbers until now. I've heard that they killed four Hamas leaders and suddenly they killed 7,000. I think it's just an attempt to make it seem as though they're not killing mainly babies, children, women, elderly, and, and also some civilian men. So what I realized more recently, because I heard it to several people, uh, not necessarily people I know, like one of them was on the BBC, who explained, he's in Jerusalem, and he explained that they don't show any of that on Israeli media, that Israeli media is still almost 100% on October 7. It's all about what happened. In October 7, possibly some stories I saw today in Haaretz that there are things that have been proven to be wrong, but they're still spreading them on Israeli media. And so there's that all the time, you know, 24-7, they're still, as, the, as that reporter put it, they are still on, on, on the drama of October 7. But they don't, they're not shown anything of what's going on in Gaza. And so, like, one of the people who is haunting me on social media, you know, like, everything that they put, she's like, what? <laughs> uh, no, and she, I know her because she was to, she used to be a, um, a peace activist. Actually, one of the times that I was in Israel, she invited me to go with her to a in its school, which in the West Bank, and go and meet with um, Palestinians for a whole weekend, which is a very valuable weekend. And and she took me. She was she was driving, and she took me for quite a while by the the separation wall, so I could get the real feel of what that is like. Which is it it really makes you feel like an ant. It's so and so strong so but now she's just wherever she sees any post for me she attacks me so that is you know that is really very worth very worrying which is now, kind of uh reiterating i mentioned before when i was talking with krista about how israel has all of the weapons or most of them and yeah. also, one of its most potent weapons is that propaganda and the control of the media. And I just Absolutely. see that everywhere. It, it's heartbreaking, the kind of things that they put out there. And, yeah. And Essie, I wanted to ask you, because earlier in your life, you, you did actually serve in the Israeli military. Yeah. So you have some sense of 
what that organization is like. And we know that, that not long before the attacks on October 7th, there were there was beginning to be some kind of a movement uh, among the Israeli Defense Force and the Reserve Forces yeah. saying that they they were not going to take part, and that, that shifted completely. Have you heard anything about that? We're not hearing anything about that in the media. I, it seems unlikely that the families of those of those soldiers are getting any coverage or, or whether that's completely shifted since well, the attack. Let me, let me explain the whole thing. So for months before October 7, there were demonstrations every Saturday against Netanyahu and his government. And these demonstrations were very big. A big uh, percentage of the Israeli population was participating in them regularly. Yeah, 5%. And as it became more of a regular thing and the numbers were growing, a lot of Israeli reservists, and, and when I say reservists, it's not just like foot soldiers. It was pilots or military planes, you know, the ones who are dropping the bombs right now, soldiers in specialty units, in elite units. These were some of the people without whom the Israeli military won't be what it is. And these people signed by the thousands and perhaps even by the tens of thousands because there were hundreds of thousands who were out in the streets. And they signed a um, declaration saying that they would not go, not do reserve service. And in Israel, you know, especially for men, they continue doing reserve service for at least a month each year. And in cases of war, you know, they may be in reserve forever. So on the 6th of October, all these people were preparing to go out to the streets the next day. And then October 7th happened and Hamas attacked Israel and that was a very dramatic thing for um, Israel. And suddenly everybody got drafted and forgot that what they said before and they are now mm. fighting for Netanyahu and his extremist, really fascist government. And, you know, when you are in war, again, this is not exactly a war, but when you are on the ground, you can't go back, right? I mean, if you try to escape, you will get shot by uh, your own people, and um, you just, you're there until it's over. And then when it's over, what I predict is that um, there will be a serious earthquake in Israeli politics because these people did not want to fight for Netanyahu. They are fighting now for Netanyahu. There's the question of why this even happened, the Hamas attack, because Netanyahu was warned <laughs> 10 days before it happened by the head of Egyptian, um, the Egyptian intelligence service, that something like that was going to happen, and he did absolutely nothing. He didn't move one soldier to the southern border. And so why is that? And why did it take seven hours for soldiers to start coming to respond to the attack by Hamas. Israel is a very small country. There are soldiers everywhere. There's no reason why it should have taken more than an hour, if that. So there's all these questions that nobody is asking now, right? And when I ask Israelis about that, they're like, first we have to finish it, then we'll we'll <laughs> deal with all that. Yeah, but it seems like it's like with one voice. <laughs> right, right. And in the meantime, they are fighting for... Paul Netanyahu. So let me just finish and I'll, I'll tell you my prediction, which may be wrong, is that when these people come back, having shot at and killed women and children and elderly, having destroyed the whole Gaza Strip, they will come back, they will tell their stories, they will they will have both PTSD and various <laughs> physical ailments from I mean, you know, when, when you bomb such a small place with more than two nuclear bombs worth of ammunition, 
it affects your body, right? It affects your lungs. It affects, I don't know what else. I'm not a, a medical person, but so these people will come back with a lot of trouble, both emotional and, and psychological and physical, and and they will talk. And that will be for sure the end of Netanyahu and his government. But where we go from there, that's the question. And I, I think it will be a totally different Israel after that. I think that that might be the beginning of a one state. And, you know, who knows? But that is my thinking currently. Thanks, Esti. And we want to take this opportunity right now, just in, in the last 15 minutes of the program, uh, to give callers a chance who have been listening to to call in and ask some questions of our guests, uh, Krista Brun and Esti Denur. And the, the number is 608-467-5627. That is 608-467-5627. And if you call in, we'd be glad to to put you on the air and uh, but get... please have a succinct. Yeah, please have question. a succinct question. Yes, we're looking for questions and not actually a lot of editorializing. What would you like more clarity about from the, our guests that uh, they've been talking about in terms of their perspectives? So uh, that's again six zero eight four six seven five six two seven. And in the meantime, Esty, welcome. I'm sorry about your car. <laughs> you did a great yeah. job at the rally yesterday. I heard your speech, and it was excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess we could ask each of you, as as we're waiting to see if we get some calls, about what your experience was at the rally, because both of you were there. You were up on the podium, Esty, and Krista was out on the street with the with the protesters who were marching. What what was your your take on the on on the protest itself, Esty? So um, I think that other than the fact that the microphone was not strong enough and so a lot of people didn't get to hear the speeches, but other than that, I thought it was an amazing event. Close to 60 organizations were involved. It went very well. The people I worked with were all very nice. And, And it's one thing that I'm saying now is that so many people and so many organizations that uh, until now, you know, they know about what's going on in Palestine or didn't care about it, are coming together and working together. And that is, I mean, it's it's terrible that it's happening because of, of the carnage in uh, Gaza, but since the carnage is happening, it is to me very encouraging to see such a, you know, coming together of Palestinians and Jews and Israelis and labor and Native uh, Americans and so on and so forth. Yes. So I, I think that's very good. Yeah. And Krista, what do you think? Yeah, for me, it was really powerful. I mean, it brought back memories of being in college and protesting <laughs> against uh, apartheid in South Africa at the same time that I was protesting for self-determination for the Palestinian people back in those days. And to see uh, the tremendous intersection of uh, of communities come together and uh, clearly there's a diversity of, of opinion in terms of all the different signs and but but to just uh, really come together in solidarity around this issue and to see people connecting the dots and also really feeling strongly about holding American policy accountable to American values and the impact that our policy has on people's lives around the world, that really came out strong. So I, I just found it really just very powerful experience. And it, it, it gave me a, a lot of hope because I've often, I often feel like uh, it's it's easy where you know in in, this, in the United States, as an insulated country, we can we can be complacent, we can check out, and to see people wanting to learn about this issue, to speak out on it, and to connect it to their own uh, personal experiences or to the communities, other communities who have somehow been marginalized uh, throughout history or currently. I found that all very powerful. So it gave me it gave me hope that you know we we have a vibrant democracy. What's what's disappointing is the slow pace of our leaders to respond 
and to step up to the challenge of having the courage to really address this issue head on and be an honest broker uh, for the future of Israel and Palestine. Because for me, it's like a marriage, you know, a forced marriage with no no way out, no no divorce. So Israelis and Palestinians are destined through very different historical circumstances to live as two peoples in one land. Uh, we've got about ten, nine or 10 minutes left. Thank you, Krista. Uh, we, we want to encourage callers who might have some thoughts or questions uh, for our guests to call in. And the number to call is 608-467-5627. That's 608 467 5627. And one more time, 608-467-5627. Love to give you a chance to ask a question on the air. And the way you were just closing uh, your comments, Krista, about the slow movement of of our own policymakers. And Esti, you gave your prediction about what may happen in Israel. And it'd be interesting to hear from both of you. Uh, You've just said, Krista, that it's really slow, but do you think that I think obviously not this just this protest is going to have a huge impact? But these uh, protests are going on across the country, whether and around, uh, around the world, and around That's the right. world. Whether you have any hope that here, in terms of U.S. policymakers, that this kind of um, or uprising of protest about current U.S. policy may have an impact. What's your hope about that? Uh, let's start with you, Esty. Well, I mean, I. <laughs> I was amazed to, not amazed, not amazed, but I was really dismayed um, that Biden basically vetoed the world uh, yes. two days ago, yesterday. Yesterday. Um, to everybody voted, you know, all the countries that are in the um, Security Council voted for a ceasefire, but the United States vetoed it. So that is appalling. And then later, in the day, he found a way to make it so that Congress doesn't have to vote to send more armaments to Israel. So they are, they are sending, I see that there's some sign there, but I don't know what it says. So I have to leave here in, oh, okay. in a minute or two. But um, they found a way to to send more armaments to Israel so yes. that it continue destroyed Gaza. And I'm, I'm just, yeah, I think, you know, Krista is right that we can see the democracy in the streets, but we do not see it in what's going on with the American government. And Biden is a Democrat, which is so much more dismaying. And uh, I think he might lose the next elections because of what's going on. So there's a caller, but, well, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the... Okay, let's hear what our caller has to say. Yes, thanks so much, Jesse. Uh, and uh, caller, you're on the air. Yes, uh, can you speak to the power of the the powerful uh, lobby groups that kind of uh, dictate what their policy should be applied, and they often support both sides of the aisle and to ensure that their propaganda is forwarded by American foreign policymakers. You know, the lobbyists such as APAC, who uh, primarily put a lot of money toward uh, favorable candidates and try to remove others that do not agree with their opinions or stand on um, the situation in Palestine. Thanks for the question. So it'd be to get your perspective on, on the role that and that uh, groups, lobbyists like the American-Israeli Political Action Committee are having in shaping the policies of, of the United States and having an impact on the kind of decisions that President Biden made or that Senator Baldwin is not making. Is that kind of influence having more impact than the democracy rising in the street? Esti, <laughs> why don't you go ahead and I'll, I can follow you. Yeah, go. I'll give it a couple more minutes. Um, so I think they have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. Uh, Tami has gone on their um, on their penny to Israel and um, met with the military that industrial complex there. She also got money from the military industrial complex here, which of course has been a major factor in the United States forever. Uh, the United States military is bigger than the next ten together. So that's Russia, China, and the other eight. So. 
So there's a lot of power there. And also part of the Israeli lobby, a big important part is actually the fundamentalist Christians, not the Jews who also have a lot of money and a lot of political power. And the funny thing about them, they're of course great friends with Netanyahu, but their, their support is because as part of their story, the end of the world will start in Israel. And that's the uh, that fundamentalists. When, that's when they will be able to join Christ through the, like, well, what is it called? They, they will ascend to Christ and all the rest of us. Jews especially are going to end up in, in hell, but in the meantime, they support Israel so that they can make sure that the ha- this end will happen. So it's all very complicated, but yeah, there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of power there, and that's where democracy ends. That's one of the places where democracy ends in the United States. Well, I think those representatives who are not on APAC's payroll... Uh, like Rashida Talib and others, you know, we have quite a quite a following now of, of representatives who are calling for a ceasefire and are being threatened by uh, organizations like APAC that, that they will be challenged in the next election. And so these are realities that our current system has to contend with. And so it's important to expose that for what it is. And uh, I know that, you know, these candidates are going to have to push through and and uh, basically challenge uh, those organizations that that try to direct American policy through their pocketbook. And we need to get back to uh, to do the right thing. And it's it's definitely an uphill battle. I know I witnessed it all the way back in the 80s when I was an intern on Capitol Hill. But and we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Krista and Esty, for helping us understand some things. I don't know if any of us understand everything for and for working tirelessly for justice and peace and much respect and much gratitude. And for information on events and news in Madison, a good source is madisonrafah.org and look on the events tab there. And thanks also to the Worldview Collective. A special thanks to Gil and Buya Sabi Maria, and especially to Wart News and Public Affairs Director Shally Pittman. And thank you for listening. Please join us next week for a new edition of Worldview here on your community-sponsored radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.